Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, Canada's most prestigious science prize goes to an AI researcher with serious doubts about the safety of his life's work. It's hard to suddenly consider your work as something that could be dangerous for society. It's difficult for many in the, in the community to take these risks seriously. And it's happened before. Scientists find evidence of an ancient solar storm big enough to devastate our modern technological society. We would expect a, a massive shock to uh, our energy grid, internet connection, and we should be uh, prepared and have backup solutions for many things that we take for granted. Plus, Atlantic killer whales carry poison in their blubber, football players' lifespan depends on their position, and a new device could help the blind see with sound. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, His Majesty the King. The rapid rise of powerful artificial intelligence is considered by many of the greatest thinkers of our age to be no less significant, no less important than the discovery of electricity, uh, the splitting of the atom, the creation of the World Wide Web, or even the harnessing of fire. However, if we are to realize the untold benefits of AI, then we must work together on combating its significant risks too. AI continues to advance with ever greater speed towards models that some predict could surpass human abilities, even human understanding. That was King Charles delivering an address to world leaders and scientists at an AI safety summit held this week at historic Bletchley Park in the UK. At the meeting, 28 countries, including the US, China and Canada, signed on to a new pledge to work to avoid the catastrophic risks posed by advances in artificial intelligence. While this was happening, Canada's most prestigious science prize, the Hertzberg Canada Gold Medal for Science and Engineering, was awarded this week to Joshua Bengio, one of the researchers who's helped make modern AI possible. He was at the summit in the UK because of his concerns about the future of the field he helped create. Dr. Bengio is Scientific Director of MILA, the Quebec AI Institute, and Professor in the Department of Computer Science and Operations Research at Université de Montréal. He's a pioneer in neural networks and deep learning. These are the technologies behind much of the stunning explosion in AI in recent years, from image and speech recognition to the kind of natural language processing behind today's chatbots. Professor Bengio, welcome to Quirks and Quarks, and congratulations on the Hertzberg Medal. Oh, thank you. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Now, you've been one of the leaders of one particular set of ideas for artificial intelligence, deep learning, for decades now. What led you to pursuing that in the first place? Well, before we uh, made up this name, um, 
we we use the term neural networks, um, the idea was that we might be able to build intelligent machines by taking inspiration from neuroscience, from the brain. And even better than that, uh, we were working under what I call the extraordinary hypothesis that maybe we can understand intelligence uh, in humans, animals, and uh, future AI systems um, in a way similar to how we understand physics with uh, a few simple principles, uh, which at the time sounded a little bit crazy, but um, the, the last few decades uh, suggest that uh, this could work out. And so why has it been so successful in recent years? There's been progress on many fronts. Uh, the algorithms, and uh, in, in that has been through a series of steps over the last uh, few decades. Um, the uh, computing abilities turns out to have been a key factor in the progress uh, recently, but also the, the first few successes of deep learning around 2010, 2012 were really because we started to use these uh, graphics processing units that, that were designed for graphics, but turned out to be great for neural nets. And uh, the other factor is data. Uh, we now have access to data sets that were impossible to think about uh, when, when I was a PhD student. Uh, the, the, the quantity we're talking about, trillions of data points for uh, training these chatbots, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the technology that's helped a lot, but you, you talk about how you wanted to model deep learning on the human brain. So has it come closer to emulating human or animal intelligence, or has it departed along its own path? Both. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, actually. Uh, in the, the particular area of vision, both computer vision and, and natural vision, uh, researchers have been trying to uh, match the kind of... Um, of patterns of activity in artificial neural networks in computers using deep learning and the patterns of activity that you can uh, see in the brains of uh, monkeys, for example. And in the first decade or so of deep learning, every year we would see both the accuracy of the systems improve and also the correlation with the, the kinds of computations that the brain does. Um, but in, in the last years, we're, we're seeing the opposite uh, trend. So it, it continues to get better, but it's starting to be different from, more different from how brains are computing. So, yeah, it's like, think of it like, uh, about, you know, planes and birds. Uh, they're different, but they're also underlying principles. And the, 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 maybe the initial planes uh, were meant to look a little bit like birds uh, or um, uh, other flying beings. But, but nowadays, of course, they don't look at all like birds. But the learning that these computers are doing, how different is it from the kind of learning that I do, for example, when I take on, I don't know, a new language or something? Well, that's a that's a great question, and um, and again, we we don't have all the answers yet. Uh, mostly, we don't really know how the brain is learning. So we we know the effect of learning because we can see that with uh, neuroscience observations. And as I said earlier, it it does look like the way your brain uh, learns has a lot of similarities at the, uh, as as you progress in learning a task with uh, the way these neural nets. Learn, but the the specific, like the mathematical formula used in computers, is very different. Uh, and nowadays, people like Jeffington and I 
think that it actually might be better in, in the way we're doing it in computers because we are able to use very high precision calculations, whereas the brain has this very um, noisy and imprecise calculations. Uh, so uh, we don't yet know how it's going happening in the brain, but um, uh, there's still, it's still a very active research area. So are you saying that you don't really know how these machines are learning? They're, they're just doing it, but you don't know the exact mechanism? Uh, no, no. For machines, we know exactly. For brains, we're not sure. Oh, okay. the, there are many hypotheses and theories, and it's harder to monitor what is going on in the brain. But in machines, of course, we can measure everything. Now, we, we know the mechanisms, like the, the mathematical formula that is applied at each step where uh, these uh, artificial synapses are being modified so that the whole system does its job better. We, we exactly know what is going on, but, but what we don't know is the, is the result, like the result of training millions or billions or trillions of parameters in, in these huge uh, uh, artificial systems. Uh, is something we can't predict. There are emergent capabilities that we didn't anticipate or didn't anticipate as quickly, and it's not it's not easy to figure it out. I don't know how you're doing it, but you're doing it right. <laughs> what are some of the achievements that you are particularly proud of? Well, um, I'll start with something that's very relevant today. In, in 2000, I published a paper at um, the main uh, neural net conference called NeurIPS, and it was about neural networks for modeling language sequences of words. And, and a recipe very similar to this is actually what is used right now to train those huge uh, large language models and chatbots. Um, another discovery of mine um, in 2014 introduced something inspired by the brain, which is attention mechanisms, um, something that... Uh, it allows us to focus on a few elements, uh, like a few words, uh, in the calculations that our brain does. So uh, we put something like this into these artificial neural nets, and it turned out to be extremely useful, and it gave rise to um, uh, much better machine translation first, and then much better language models, which, and these kinds of uh, attention mechanisms are used in, in the state of the art today uh, more and more. You mean like in the uh, voice recognition and chatbots? Yes, yes. When did you start to be concerned that the field of artificial intelligence is moving too fast? Well, I, I've been concerned about social impact for many years. Um, already a decade ago, when large companies started using machine learning, neural nets, deep learning for advertising, I was a bit worried that it would end up being used to manipulate people. Um, but it's really this year with uh, ChatGPT that my concerns have increased by a whole notch. Uh, essentially, the, the question that I've been uh, worried about is, we are on a trajectory to build machines that may eventually surpass us in many areas and potentially on everything. And what's going to happen when, when you know, along that trajectory um, is uh, is uh, the power of the tool going to become something uh, dangerous in the wrong hands, or could we even lose control of these systems if they are smarter than us? These are all important questions to which, unfortunately, we don't have the answers, and the answers are both scientific, like how do we make sure an AI system does what we want, and we don't have the answer to that. And they are um, 
political or if you want about governance, what sort of uh, regulation and, and laws and international treaties should we put in place to make sure that um, such a powerful and potentially extremely useful tool is, is not harming people and society? Well, if we lose control of AI, as you say, what could they possibly do? <laughs> well, that's when we enter into uh, a space which used to be occupied by science fiction, uh, <laughs> yes. which causes a, a lot of uh, anxiety and, and confusion, even among researchers. We're not used to think uh, about uh, something that looks uh, speculation, but we have to. We, we have to, because if we want to prepare against something really bad happening, you know, we may not have a lot of time. And so what could go wrong? Let me give uh, an example taken from 2001 Space Odyssey with uh, HAL 9000, the computer, the AI, which uh, ends up killing people because it's been given an objective by some military people, it's always their fault, right? To, to achieve a particular mission that he it, it doesn't want to reveal to, to the crew. And when there's some you know questions about maybe the, the computer is doing something wrong um, and, and the, the crew is talking about turning it off, um, it decides to uh, kill the, the, the crew because it, it, it needs to achieve its mission. So this is an example of what happens when an AI that's being programmed um, because it wants to achieve the goal that we've given, but maybe it doesn't have as good as a moral compass as we do, could end up harming people. And you can be sure that any smart AI system is going to make sure that it can't be turned off. <laughs> exactly. Like if it's smart enough, the first thing it does when it realizes that we may turn it off is maybe try to copy itself over other computers and then it's going to get harder for us. Uh, the, the other thing I'm worried about actually is that there are people who would like to see us humanity replaced by smarter humans, uh, smart, smarter uh, machines. And well, I, I'm, you know, I, I have children and grandchildren and I, I, I'd rather not see that scenario happen. So this is, this is worrisome. Like we, we have issues, not just technical, like in other words, even if we knew how to build AI systems that were safe, we still have the problem that some humans might uh, want to do things with them that could be very dangerous for everyone. Now, you're one of the people who brought us this technology. Why didn't you um, anticipate the dangers that it might pose? I should have. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it sounded like science fiction. Before I saw the incredible um, abilities of, of these uh, modern systems in, in 2022, 2023, and it, it, you know, I thought that, well, it would be decades, if not centuries, before we got to human-level performance. But I think there are other reasons that are psychological. You know, um, researchers are human beings. Um, we may reason in ways that are aligned with what motivates us, what makes us feel good about our work. It's it's hard to suddenly uh, consider your work as something that could be dangerous for society. And you may look the other way. Um, so I think there are many factors here uh, that explain also even why now it's difficult for many in the, in the community to take these risks seriously. Are you having an Oppenheimer moment here? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There, you know, analogies um, could be useful. I, I think all scientists um, should be thinking about um, how their work could be having a potentially negative impact. We don't get that kind of training. Uh, you know, I uh, when I was a, a student and uh, 
you know, learned computer science and uh, very technical things. I didn't get any class in philosophy and ethics and uh, um, social sciences. But 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 now I realize that um, it would have been better if um, I had been exposed to these questions earlier. And, and we should make sure that the next generations of scientists, at least in my field, where we are having a, a huge impact on society, uh, understand those questions uh, that that are you know more on the social sciences and humanities side of things. So what do you think the recipe for regulating the technology is and make sure that we don't go down these uh, terrible scenarios that you just described? Well, um, the, the first thing is not to be discouraged and um, to think about the little things that we can do um, as quickly as possible that can move the needle. So we first need to get governments to understand that this is very powerful technology, like any other scientific um, output that, that can um, change, transform society. It needs to be done carefully. And uh, Canada has been moving uh, fairly well and uh, preparing a, a, a law that would also already you know, do a good job. Um, but, but we need to do more. We need to work on the uh, international level to make sure that as many countries as possible um, work together to harmonize their legislation, um, to make sure, for example, that all of these more dangerous systems or potentially dangerous systems are registered. We know where they are. Uh, we make sure that the um, uh, companies or the organizations working on them are taking the right precautions. Um, we um, want to make sure that there is also democratic oversight. So what I mean by this is, well, yes, regulators need to know what is going on, but but also media and academics and civil society, because we are building tools that will be more and more powerful. And power is sort of power concentration is sort of the and you know the opposite of democracy here. Uh, we need to make sure that there are checks and balances so that this power is used for good. Okay, we've talked about the scary scenarios, but what is your optimistic vision for the future of artificial intelligence? Well, I love that question. Uh, for many years now, and especially since the beginning of the pandemic, um, I've been interested in how machine learning, deep learning could be used to help scientific discovery in many fields. And so I've learned a lot of um, uh, biology, chemistry, <laughs> physics uh, in the last few years. Uh, and in particular, uh, I think that it's very likely that we'll see a revolution in, in some of these fields. Uh, I think about biology, especially because we are now generating huge quantities of data, for example, about what is going on in your cells, your healthy cells, your cancer cells. Um, and, you know, your cells are incredibly complex machines. You've got 20,000 genes that interact with each other, and we don't understand all of that, uh, those mechanisms. But we now have ways of, uh, you know, uh, peaking and poking and measuring huge quantities of, uh, you know, what is going on and what is the expression of all those genes. And uh, that provides information that human brain cannot digest directly, but AI can really help us form theories and models that could help us understand at a scientific level, but also cure. Once we understand how something works, we can design the drugs. Uh, already, uh, pharmas are working on uh, designing, for example, uh, antibody-based drugs that, that are 
uh, design using AI, for example. Well, Dr. Bengio, congratulations once again on getting the Hertzberg Medal, and thank you so much for telling us about it. My pleasure. Dr. Yashua Bengio is Scientific Director of MILA, the Quebec AI Institute, and Professor in the Department of Computer Science and Operations Research at Université de Montréal. He's also this year's recipient of the Hertzberg Canada Gold Medal for Science and Engineering. Football is a tough sport. It's celebrated, even venerated, for the punishment that is taken and dealt out by the powerful athletes giving their all on the field. And we know something of the price players pay. Broken bones, torn muscles and ligaments, and of course, catastrophic head injuries. The accumulated damage can have implications for a lifetime. In fact, it can have implications on lifetime as well. In a new study, researchers in the U.S. have investigated the lifespan of professional football players. And what they found is that a pro player's life expectancy depends on the position they play. Dr. Rob Warren, a professor from the Institute for Social Research and Data Innovation at the University of Minnesota, was part of the team. Dr. Warren, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me. Now, football players have been well-studied in the past for issues like concussion. What were you trying to understand? We, uh, my colleague uh, Gina Ramora and I started this work as a debate. She is adamantly against football for various reasons. I, I'm more of a fan. The debate was about the health consequences. And so we, we being academics, read the research literature about concussions and heart disease and death. And the literature on death puzzled us. Much of that research shows that football players live longer than people in general or men in general. And that's sort of baffling in light of evidence about head injuries and cardiovascular problems. So that's how we got started. A friendly squabble. <laughs> well, they live longer. Well, well, how did you look at the longevity among football players? Sure. So unlike other fields of research, there is plenty of data on football players. What most researchers have done is simply do the math to compute the average age at death of football players and then look up in some demographic source the life expectancy of men in general, and they conclude that football players live longer. And that's factually accurate, but it's also not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Well, just in general, why do they live longer? They live longer because of something called the healthy worker effect. And this is a phenomenon known in epidemiology and in various other fields. If you study any line of work, people who do a particular job, even really dangerous jobs like coal mining or, or industrial jobs, people who have worked in that job for a long time tend to live a lot longer, even if the job is really dangerous. And it's because they're healthy enough to work. Not everybody in America or in Canada or in, or in other countries is healthy enough to work. Not everybody has had two or three years of college like is required uh, of professional football players in the United States. Not everybody is employed. Not everybody 
makes wages that are above poverty. If you compare the lifespans of football players to men who meet all those criteria, a few years of college at least, employed, don't have any major disabilities, you find that the differences look quite at odds with what previous research has shown. Oh, I see. So you're saying football players are sort of self-selected to be the healthiest among us because they eat right, they exercise a lot? <laughs> More so than, than men in general, right? They are capable of being employed. They are physically active. They don't make poverty wages. They have had some college. And, and those things all improve longevity for everybody, not just football players. Okay, so what did you see when you looked into this in more detail and compared the different positions in the game? Yeah, the focus on different positions came from particular concern about the cardiovascular health of linemen. There's good evidence that beginning late in high school or early in college, men who are destined to be linemen do a lot of strength training, a lot of lifting and putting on mass without doing sufficient cardio you know, they don't run enough. They don't balance that with cardio. And that's known to be really detrimental to heart health. And then after their careers, they often don't lose that weight. So we didn't study the causes of death, but the speculation is that linemen in particular may have some real problems. And that's, that's exactly what we found. Offensive and defensive linemen actually die sooner than comparable men. Now, the linemen, those are the huge guys who get down and they basically run into each other head to head on every play, right? Yes. And they weigh typically around 300 pounds and are the largest people on the field. And yeah, they smash into each other. It may be the head contacts, but it may also be the cardiovascular uh, health of those, of those people. Now, how much shorter are their lives compared to, say, somebody on the end of the line or the quarterback? A couple of years. Boy. The people who play other positions, their longevity is about the same as men in uh, comparable men. There isn't much of an, an advantage or disadvantage for playing other positions, which might be a little surprising since these are physically elite athletes who have plenty of economic resources in many cases to, to afford good health care. Um, so you might think they should live longer, but they don't live much longer than, than men in general. Well, given the linemen's economical and physical advantages, what could they do to prevent that uh, shorter life after they retire from football? If it turns out that it really is about cardiovascular things, that's actually encouraging because you can do things about that. It, it's much harder to take head injuries out of the game. These huge people going very fast are going to collide. But if it's about cardiovascular things, that we can take care of better in the weight room and in the training regimens. If it's really a need to balance cardio with strength in high school, college, and at the professional ranks, that can be built into training regimens. That we can actually change more easily than stopping people from getting concussions. Now, in hockey, there's the role of the enforcers, the, the ones who are out there fighting more than the others, and they've come under scrutiny re in recent years. Is there a comparison here to football? There really is. There was a recent article, a really well done article on the effects of being an enforcer. And at first, before I read it, I was deeply skeptical because I thought it would be using similar research designs to the work that we're critiquing. But they actually did a, a wonderful job of investigating how enforcers compare to very similar players who simply had fewer penalty minutes. 
you know, which is a, a proxy for, for being an enforcer. You know, you end up with a lot of five-minute penalties. If you compare players who are similar in every respect but just didn't rack up those penalty minutes from fighting, they live substantially longer. So there, there is a parallel here. So how is your research into the fact that uh, linemen in football have shorter lives than other players changed the way you watch the game? Boy, that's a complicated question. Back, <laughs> back to my colleague who is very much against football for a variety of reasons having to do with you know racial inequities and gender inequities and subsidizing billionaires with public dollars, all of which I'm sympathetic with. This is just piling on. It's still hard for me not to root for my local team. <laughs> so I'm, I'm conflicted. <laughs> Dr. Warren, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Dr. Rob Warren is a professor from the Institute for Social Research and Data Innovation at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the show, Seeing with Sound. New smart glasses could bring auditory image recognition to the blind. The cameras will be able to use computer vision to read certain objects. So when the object moves into their field of view, the glasses will play sound based on the object seen. You've heard it again and again. You are what you eat. And that's as true for us as it is for other animals. Even the ocean's top predators, the majestic killer whales. Now that would be fine, except for the fact that some of what the killer whales are eating is heavily contaminated with industrial chemicals. A new study has shown that from the east coast of Canada to the Arctic, Iceland, Norway, and Greenland, Orcas of the Atlantic are showing signs of worrisome contamination, and this could have ripple effects throughout the marine food web. Dr. Anais Ramele just published this research for her PhD in marine biology at McGill University. Hello, Dr. Ramele. Welcome to our program. Hello, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. Just how contaminated are the killer whales in the North Atlantic? Well, they're way more contaminated than we first expected. And it goes against everything you would expect from a geographical perspective, because these contaminants are usually carried through the atmospheric and ocean currents from the west to the east. So typically we would expect killer whales in Norway to have more contaminants than killer whales in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, but we observed the opposite pattern. We found that killer whales in Norway are far less contaminated than the killer whales in the Canadian Arctic or Eastern Canada. And we were able to link that to their diet preferences and show that it's really the diet that makes them discontaminated. How so? In the killer whales that eat fish are far less contaminated, and then killer whales that have a mixed diet that includes both fish and marine mammals 
show elevated concentrations of these chemicals, but then these chemicals reach a peak in marine mammal specialists, so killer whales that really feed on marine mammals, such as seals, belugas, narwhals, porpoises, etc. Oh, they're more contaminated than the ones that eat fish. Absolutely, yes. It becomes a problem because contaminants amplify as they move up the food web, So marine life, let's say, starting with plankton, they just absorb them from the water, but then they pass them along when they're eaten, and they amplify like this as they move up the food web. So you can imagine that killer whales being at the very top of the food chain already accumulate quite a lot of contaminants. But if they eat on marine mammals that have already accumulated the contaminants inside the fish, then they get multiplied the amounts. Boy. So the killer whales are getting these contaminants through the food that they eat. They're not just getting it straight out of the water. They are, but that amount is negligible because these chemicals amplified so much throughout the food web. The diet is the main route of entry for these chemicals inside the whales. Now, what kind of contamination are they carrying? So they're carrying contaminants called persistent organic pollutants, Uh, They are often referred to as forever chemicals in mass media, and these chemicals include infamous compounds such as PCBs or polychlorinated biphenyls, uh, chlorinated pesticides like DDT, and brominated flame retardants. So DDTs are the stuff that we used to spray back in the last century to control pests in our agriculture, and we banned them in the 70s. Uh, But they're very persistent, just like PCBs that we used in the industry or flame retardants that we used pretty much everywhere to prevent things from catching on fire. And all these chemicals have already been banned But the problem with these chemicals is that they are very stable. They do not degrade in the environment. So they stay there. They persist for decades. Now, how did you go about investigating how much contaminant is in uh, the body of a killer whale? Because these these are pretty big animals over a very large area. And, well, they're top predators. Absolutely. So first of all, that was a very amazing international collaborating effort where we had multiple teams spread around the entire North Atlantic that were able to collect some of these samples. I myself got to go to Iceland, which was amazing, and participate in the collection of these biopsies. And so the way we go about it is that we approach the whales from small boats and then we shoot little darts at the whales behind their dorsal fin to collect a little piece of blubber. So it's really not that big. It's about two centimeters deep. And from this one little piece of uh, sample, so we collect a little piece of skin and the blubber under the skin, we're able to look at the contaminants inside the blubber of the animal. And the reason is because these contaminants stick to fat. And so they accumulate in the blubber of the animals. So by collecting this little tiny piece of skin and blubber, we're able to tell you how contaminated the animal are. Wow. And you're not worried that you're going to annoy the killer whale? It is a top predator. It could (laughs) come after you? Yeah, especially with all these uh, killer whale attack stories that we've heard from uh, Gibraltar. From what I've seen in the field and from spending time with them, they look mostly undisturbed. I think that after a while, they're just annoyed to have the boat around when they're trying to feed. So we never spend too long with a family or a pod. Once we see that the killer whales are starting to get a bit annoyed, we just leave them alone because we don't want to harass them. Okay, so once you get your sample of blubber and skin from the killer whale, how do you go about determining what it ate? 
So the very neat part of our study is that once we collected this little piece of blubber and skin, we were able to separate the blubber into two equal layers. And we used the half of the blubber to determine the, the contaminant concentrations inside the whale. And on the other half of the biopsies, we looked at the lipid composition inside the whale's blubber. And then by applying some modeling methods that we developed for killer whales, we were able to reconstruct their diets and to estimate the different percentages of prey that they ate in the North Atlantic. Now, when you say lipid, you're talking about uh, the building blocks of fat, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay. We have different types of lipids inside our fat. We're looking at saturated fatty acids, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids. And then we look at the same thing in the prey, and then we use this very complicated model to basically reconstruct the diet of the individuals. Oh, so is it a case where these lipids, these fats, go from the prey directly into the whale's blubber? Absolutely. Like you said, we are what we eat. And so <laughs> we are able, by using this very principle, to reconstruct the diet of these killer whales by looking at their fat, which is quite a neat technique. So what kind of effect can eating these contaminated marine mammals have on the health of the killer whales? So we know that these chemicals can affect their ability to fight diseases and parasites, so they affect their immune system. They can also affect their hormones, so their endocrine systems. And finally, at very high concentrations, they can affect their ability to reproduce. And we even know in the past decades that some of these contaminants have been linked to cancers and belugas. What's at stake here? You know, when you have a top predator, if you remove it from an ecosystem or it gets sick or something, the ecosystem changes. So what would be the change in the case of the, of the killer whales if they became sick or, or their numbers disappeared? Well, we know that top predators like killer whales and other marine mammals uh, control the populations of their prey species through top-down effects. And so if the top predators were to disappear, it would throw the entire ecosystem out of balance because these top predators maintain a harmonious balance within their ecosystems. And so if killer whales and other whales were to die because of these contaminants, that would throw our entire ecosystems out of balance. Dr. Romeli, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Anais Romeli is a whale biology researcher at McGill University. Echolocation is a fascinating behavior. A range of animals, most famously bats and whales, but also a few birds and insects, use sonar to navigate and locate prey. And it's also known in humans. Some partly or fully blind humans have learned to use echolocation to sense their environment, often by making clicking sounds and listening for the acoustic reflection. Dr. Howie Zhu is a research associate from the Human-Centric AI Lab and the Computing and Audio Research Lab at University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. He took inspiration from echolocation to try to help blind people navigate in what he called a more fluent manner. He combined several existing technologies to create sonar glasses that can help the blind hear their way in the world. Dr. Zhu, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you for inviting me. 
So we have these uh, fascinating but kind of rare people who can echolocate. What made you think technology could help more people do this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the main criticism we really got for that was a lot of them felt it was you know, sometimes quite awkward to go around uh, making a clicking sound. So a lot of them said, yeah, they do like echolocation, but they found the clicking sound awkward. So that was sort of where we said, oh, well, the key feedback would be, what if we could just generate that kind of auditory feedback that gave you spatial location without necessarily walking around clicking with your tongue. Well, tell me how you developed your glasses to do the same thing. The idea is the glasses really need to just be able to read the world, find objects and find surrounding environments, and then convey the sound to the user based on their head movement. So the glasses works with two cameras and basically you have a, the cameras will be able to use computer vision to read certain objects. So when the object moves into their field of view or narrow field of view, the glasses will play sound based on the object scene. Okay. So tell me then how it works. How did you decide how it was going to, or, or what objects it was going to represent? Yeah. So I think our computer vision model actually can have more than 140 sort of objects. So for the study, we're only limited to four objects, just mainly as a control for the sake of the research. But overall, we can detect a lot of things like the wars, people, it really like shoes for some reason. Um, <laughs> and we can find chairs, tables, and other furnitures. Okay. So what were the objects that you did in your experiment? So in the experiment, we sort of focused on the tabletop concept. We looked at a cup, book, bottle, and bowl. Okay. And what happens when a person, say, looks at the book? Um, so if, when they look at a book, they'll hear a, we associate a sound. So the idea is we associate a page turning sound. So we use sort of inbuilt earphone speakers. The idea is they don't just actually play the sound, but we also spatialize the sound. When you hear the sound, you'll hear a rough 3D location associated with the sound. So you'll hear it at the direction that it should be and position should be. Oh, I see. As, as you turn your head, it gets louder when you're looking straight at it. Yeah, so when you turn your head, it does get louder. I think we also increase repetition, so it's almost like a honing system. Also, you'll hear a rough direction. So the idea is, you know, you have a field of view. If it's in front of you, you'll hear a sort of directionality in front. But if it's slightly to the side, you may hear a bit more on your, let's say, right side and hear more on your right ear than your left ear. So it's like a, you have an extra honing bit where if it's in, in your dead center of your head, basically, it will play at a high repetition. What I mean is basically a lot of people would maybe look up and down, and then when they look up, they'll hear the repetition decrease for the distance. And then when they look back down, they'll hear, oh, because my head's now pointing straight out again at this specific location or distance, the sound will increase. And the other aspect is when I'm moving my head closer to it, I'll probably hear the sound increase in amplitude, so increase in volume compared to when I was further away because the sound is actually increasing volume the closer the person is. What sounds did you use to represent a cup and a bottle? Um, so yeah, so the bottle sound was the two bottles hitting against each other. And the cup was a sound of a cup hitting the table. You have like a dunk sound when you put a cup on the table. Okay, and you had a bowl? Yeah, so sort of the spoon scraping along a bowl. So how well do your glasses work? How did you test them out? So we found that this worked quite well. Um, we were quite surprised at how well actually the people who are blind picked it up. The few things we wanted to explore was one is, was head movement intuitive? 
because we know for vision, head movement is very intuitive. Uh, for people who are blind, they do use head movement a lot to localize sound, but we weren't certain whether this kind of sensory integration was a intuitive action. And the other aspect is how well they can associate sound or learn to associate these sounds with objects. And we found that in both cases, they were actually able to pick it up quite easily. So they picked up head movement quite well. Um, they actually picked up head movement a lot better than some blindfolded people. And then they also basically pick up and learn the sounds very fast. So how far do you think you can take this technology? So we've looked at look at exploring using this technology in a walking context. So the idea is helping people not just identify objects, but also identify wars, structures. Something we're still trying to explore is stairs. How do we convey stairs very well? Because on one hand, words are really good to explain environments, but also words are very hard to con convey things like depth. So if you say, oh, there's a stairs in front of you, it doesn't really tell you the shape of the stairs or how you should be approaching the stairs, things like that. So we're trying to look at walking and then also explore more real-world context environments. So try to see how we can integrate these technologies with different real-world contexts and see how well people can actually use it in the wild. Mm -hmm. But that's an interesting idea, using words instead of just the sound. So if a person's walking down the street and a, a car's approaching them, it's a car on the left. That's true. Like, I think that that's sort of where we're sort of exploring. Like, obviously, we don't want to discount words. Um, so I think, for example, I can't play a sound that will tell me, this is Bob. You'll, you'll have to have a word that says Bob. So there are cases where words are good because sounds can't convey meaning in that way. But words are often quite hard to convey spatial locations. So, for example, a car is left is left is very vague. Left could be the whole 180 degrees of your body. While a spatial sound, you can actually hear the cue there for the car, and then your brain will actually calculate. So the brain would do the calculating for you on where the object is. What impact do you think this technology could have on those who are visually impaired? The main sort of impact we want to look at is really just providing the ability to more intuitively sense the environment. At the current state, we don't see this technology that says, oh, you can replace certain things like a long cane and things like that. But we sort of see this as a support package, as something that you can choose to include if you want to have different senses or if you want to try to be able to perceive objects more fluently or perceive objects in a way that's different. We're really looking at the glasses being something that can help enhance these kind of functions where people say, oh, yeah, this way I can actually perceive specifically what are on my table or specifically what are these objects around me. Dr. Zhu, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for the invite, and it was nice meeting you. Dr. Howie Zhu is a research associate from the Human-Centric AI Lab and the Computing and Audio Research Lab at University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. Early in September of 1859, there was a worldwide failure of telegraph systems. Operators reported receiving electric shocks and even their telegraph paper catching fire. The disruption continued for days. At the same time, at night, the northern lights were seen as far south as Colombia and South America. Something peculiar was taking place. What was happening then is known today as the Carrington Event. 
It was a massive geomagnetic storm resulting from a huge jet of hot particles being ejected from the sun and hitting the earth. Fortunately, events of this magnitude are rare, but scientists have now found evidence of an even bigger one, the largest solar storm ever identified, a massive event predating written human history. And had it occurred today, the impact to communications networks alone would have prevented me from even telling you about it. Geologist Dr. Edward Bard led the work. He's from the College of France in Paris and the European Center for Research and Teaching in Environmental Geosciences in Aix-en-Provence. Dr. Bard, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you. When exactly did this big solar storm happen? According to uh, the trees that we have uh, dated and, and for which we have counted the rings, uh, it, it occurred about 14 300 years before the present. Now, we know about the Carrington event and the impact that that had. How big was this storm compared to that? It was at least an order of magnitude larger, at least 10 times larger than the Carrington event. And uh, the evidence that we have is based on isotopes. Uh, We are not found, in fact, uh, uh, during the Carrington event. So it's difficult, in fact, to relate the two events in terms of magnitude. Now, you talked about uh, evidence in tree rings. Tell me about that. What was it that you found? We study tree rings and we measure uh, carbon-14. I mean, carbon-14 is a, is a very well-known uh, isotope, which is used as a chronometer for dating ancient artifacts and bones in archaeological sites and so forth. But at the same time, the, the whole method relies on the stability of the production of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, which is the main reservoir of carbon-14 before its uptake by living organisms. The cosmic rays that form, in fact, carbon-14 are coming from the galaxy. These are the galactic cosmic rays. They can be influenced by the Earth's magnetic field, but they can also be influenced by the properties of the solar wind. So the the sun is also modulating, in fact, the production of carbon-14 through time. And this is what happened during these very mysterious events. And the, the one that we discovered is the oldest and probably the, the largest of all. So then how does that carbon-14 end up in trees? Oh, it's very simple. I mean, when uh, soon after its formation, the, the, the carbon-14 in the stratosphere and also in the upper atmosphere, it is oxidized and it is mixed with the CO2 in the atmosphere. And then there is an uptake by plants, by photosynthesis. And then all organisms that live on plants that uh, either consume directly plants or consume other animals have more or less the same level of carbon-14 in their tissue. And then we can look at very ancient tree and count one by one the, the rings and have a very accurate chronology to be compared with the measurement of the carbon-14 age. Now, how did you find tree rings that were many thousands of years old to record this event? Uh, it's uh, just pure luck uh, that uh, in our region, uh, slightly north of uh, Aix-en-Provence, South uh, Alps, we take uh, chainsaws and, and we, we just cut the trees and we date them. Now, these isotopes that you found in the tree rings, do they show up in any other locations? Yeah, that, that's the important point. In, in fact, uh, it, it's important in fact, to compare uh, this isotope at one location with trees from another location. Uh, it has been replicated in many trees uh, all over the world. 
But at the same time, we can make use of another archive to study these uh, very special events, these very abrupt solar events, which is polar ice. And uh, it's possible to look at uh, ice cores from either Greenland or Antarctica and to study two other cosmogenic isotopes, so isotopes that are made by the cosmic rays. And uh, the two isotopes are namely uh, the beryllium-10 and the chlorine-36. They are more or less equivalent to carbon-14. They are less known, uh, but their mode of formation is uh, about the same. They are made by uh, the galactic cosmic rays in the upper atmosphere. So do the ice cores show the same spike that you saw in the tree rings indicating this supersolar event? Exactly. So that was the, the, one of the main arguments uh, for being more or less sure that we are looking at a new extreme solar particle event, which is to show that, the, that there is a match between a, a distinct anomaly in the Greenland ice core record of beryllium-10 and what we have with the, with the carbon-14 in tree rings. What causes these massive solar events? The short answer is the sun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I don't think that anybody has a clue about the exact mechanism to produce, in fact, these spikes because they were not observed over the, the recent past. And even the Carrington event is at least 10 times smaller. Clearly, for the moment, we, we don't really know what those are and what is the mode of formation uh, of, of these events. Now, we had an event here in Canada in 1989 where a solar storm knocked out the power grid in the province of Quebec for a couple of days. Based on what you know about this event over 14,000 years ago, what do you suppose would happen if it took place today? My suspicion is that it would be uh, 10 times worse. I mean, um, we would expect a, a massive shock to uh, our energy grid internet connection, computer connections, uh, and probably uh, over several several days. So we, we, we should be uh, prepared, in fact, for these events. I mean, they are extremely rare, and they, they do not occur uh, regularly. But uh, they are so powerful that even if, if it is a, a low rate of occurrence, because the, the risk is extremely high, we should also be prepared and have backup solutions for many things that we take for granted. So we need some long-term weather forecasts for the sun so we can prevent a really bad day on Earth. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the work that we are doing with tree rings or ice core is quite important for that respect. Dr. Bard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your interview. Dr. Edward Bard is a geologist from the College of France in Paris and the European Center for Research and Teaching in Environmental Geosciences in Aix-en-Provence. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.